Welcome to Bonehead. It is our pleasure. What? You know, Jeff? this is actually a very special episode of Bonehead. How's it special? It's the very first episode where I don't have my braces. They got removed. Yeah, I know. And you must have also got your first pube. So Mate, yeah. great. Oh, also, also, uh, movie, television, and podcasting legend Mick Garris is here with us today. Yeah, but <laughs> secondary. By the way, Mick, I was we were doing research before we had this, of course, even though we knew your career, and I never listened to. Um, oh hell, Chad! I, I completely forgot Gilbert Gottfried's name. Gilbert oh Godfrey. yeah, Gilbert Gottfried's podcast. Yeah, yeah well, we actually love Gilbert's podcast, but I'd never listened to yours because Gilbert actually has a lot of the same interests that the rest of us geeks have as well, right? Yeah, I was surprised to find that. And one of the reasons it's so good is their producer, Frank Santapadre, uh -huh. uh, really knows his stuff and does a lot of research for Gilbert. And Frank obviously chips in a lot. And uh, that was one of my favorite appearances on a podcast. Gilbert did a great job. You were fantastic, but Gilbert does the introductions and they take an hour and a half and you could just, and it's not just you, there's a hundred other people you can hear going, uh, it's over and you've just <laughs> talked about me for 20 minutes. You well, I was able to now. Right. All right. Chad had our first question and go Chad. So this is a very hard hitting. I'm getting the braces off Chad. That's oh, thank you. Thank you. And his first off. pube. <laughs> don't pluck it <laughs> wait for the man bush if, if you can't tell from my head it'll it fall off within a day you know uh, that's, that's a high testosterone thing it goes yeah. the other direction so Ugh. i assure go, you I, it's not testosterone i gotta go lift this toyota outside i don't know why i picked the toyota and not something more manly like a buick just just go with the question yeah so oh. this hard i got a hard-hitting question for you so um right off the you, bat yeah. Have you ever cussed in front of a priest? Not knowingly. <laughs> we were just trying to figure out a way to break the ice. And we're like, that's the only one I could come up with because I actually had that, that, that uh, experience this week of. Oh, you uh, did. You yeah. In front of a priest? Well, almost. I was talk I was talking to my, my, my daughter's go to Catholic school and the priest was outside and I started talking to him and we were talking about COVID and the face mask. And uh, you know, I have a tendency, if you haven't, we've been talking before we recorded, I have a tendency not to have a filter. And no. a good thing for a podcaster, not so good if you're trying to make nice with a priest. Yeah. And I said, I, I said, well, you know, this mask thing is great, but I can't wait for this. <laughs> and my mouth literally just started to melt off my face. And I, I and I never finished it. I never stopped. I did, he just looked at me and said, "Yeah, me too." Yeah, <laughs> I'm well, glad I've, you played, could... I've played a priest a couple of times. You could cuss. I know. <laughs> glad you could share that. You know, taking what little time we have. I am so <laughs> you, you encouraged me. Iconoclast McGarris. <laughs> And you uh, well, told us that wonderful story. Oh, let us kiss your ass just a little bit. Actually, I was looking at your first edition, Stephen. Is that the stand? It's up in here. I, I have the same it, version. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we're not going to ask any stand questions, I promise. <laughs> it's, it's quite okay. I no, don't, I don't really have any because I think most of it is... It's, it's out there. It's just so easy and quiet and slow-hanging fruit. So you and I have something in common. We're both from parents who split up yeah. and we both i think 
crawled into fantasy to deal with a lot of it. Not knowingly, but certainly that was, uh, that's what happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. At 42, I think I realized it more and more. And I think the, the birth of my son has helped me kind of understand that. I don't, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's scarred. In fact, I think it was the best thing that probably could have happened to me. It gave me among some other things that I tried, it was probably the least hurtful thing for me. It was, it was helpful. It introduced me to, to great cinema, filmmakers, uh, wonderful books. So I'm curious, right off the bat, what were some of the things, what are some of the things that you just go to to make you feel better if you're having a bad day? Well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much a, a glass half full kind of guy. Um, I can see that. And, uh, you know, I, I love reading noir books. Uh-huh. I love reading, you know, Richard Matheson and I love, love reading obvious ones, Stephen King and, and uh, uh, you know, Arthur Machen and people. But um, I also love to go back to the comfort food of the universal classics. But, you know, not, I, I've kind of seen Frankenstein, Dracula and the Wolfman enough, but Frankenstein meets the Wolfman not nearly as much. Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein is the movie I've seen more than any other. Is that your favorite film? I I would not say that. Uh, I don't really think in terms of favorites. You know, I don't I, people make lists and oh my number one and they shift them around. And it's like I either like it or I don't. I agree. Um, and I'm these days I'm not so big on rewatching or rereading. You know, I'd rather seek out something new and and. For years, I've been able to go to film festivals around the world where I get to see things that we are not normally exposed to. And now that everything is online, access to international film within the genre and out of the genre is so easy. And it's thrilling to see something I haven't experienced before. Um, And not just international stuff. The most recent movie I watched was um, The Burnt Orange Conspiracy which is based on a noir author named Charles Williford, who wrote the book Miami Blues was based on. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not a horror book, but it's a noir book. And Mick Jagger has a fantastic part in it. He's really good in it. And it's, I, I love noir. I love Twisty Turny. I love uh, uh, that sort of thing. And, and it gives me some of the same pleasure that really good horror gives me where the the dose of the unexpected is really exciting to me and and nourishing and fulfilling so i don't know if that answers that question it it does it does does. because it kind of leads to another question i have because i didn't want to ask you a lot of horror questions today because i was kind of curious i got to so a little bit about us we we do a lot of moderation and a lot of moderating at comic cons and and cons and scarefest and lexington all these things i do a lot of the main stage work and it's it's been great the last few years and one of my favorite actually the favorite panel i ever did was with george romero before he passed oh yeah and i it's one of the times where i looked you know how critical you are of yourself right you're never but it's one of the times i i actually watched it later and said, you know, Joe, you did a really damn good job because I saw famous people just a month or two later do it. And they went for the zombie questions. And I promised him before I said, I'm not going to ask you any zombie questions. He started laughing. I said, I'm not audience will ask you those. I want to talk about something else. He wanted to talk about, and he, and I guess he was sick. I didn't, I knew he didn't feel well, but he wanted to talk about the ones that got away. Which uh, led to I, wonderful stories about him almost working with Scorsese, making a horror film in the early 80s for Disney. It's wow. just, had a great time. 
So I told you all that to say, I'm curious about the non-horror, maybe non-fantasy stuff that you would have liked to do, still do. What are maybe uh, some books that you would love to adapt? Well, one of the reasons that I write books is because they don't really require a budget or a schedule or actors' egos or availabilities right. or, or studio uh, rules and test screenings and all of that. But most of the fiction that I've written, my, my new book is, is out now, and it's called These Evil Things We Do. And it's four novellas and a novel. Not all of them are horror, the, the, uh, and some of them are just tinged with it. Maybe it's a ghost story, but they're very real world set. Um, there's a couple of scripts that I wrote. One of them got me my first job on Amazing Stories when Steven Spielberg's readers read it, and the last line of their coverage was, Hire This Man. And it's called uh, Uncle Willie. It takes place in 1959 in the San Fernando Valley where I grew up, and uh, it's about a kid show host who really wanted to be an actor and could never really get the big movies. So he became an afternoon cartoon show host in the fifties on a local TV channel known as uncle Willie. So now when he goes in to do auditions, they, Oh, uncle Willie, my kids love you. And nobody would ever think of it. Just like what happened to George Reeves with Superman. Here he was in gone with the wind, all these big movies. And then he did Superman and he couldn't get another job. So Uncle Willie attempts and botches a suicide and disfigures himself. So a kid in the neighborhood who's 12 years old, who's just getting to be too old for Uncle Willie, realizes he's his neighbor and he never knew that before. And he starts to watch him come and go and, and eventually meets him and, and they befriend one another. And it's not a horror movie at all, but it's something more deeply emotional than you would normally expect from that. So that's one. one. Another one I've, I've just revisited, I rewrote a script that I wrote decades ago that has to do with evangelism, and it's a little bit magical as well. Um, and uh, it's very cynical, but it's set in 1936 in the Midwest. And it, it deals with a character that not many people know about, but is true. The only way people saw sex on the screen was guys would travel around in their beat up old pickup truck with a film projector and show exploitation movies. They'd wear a white coat, pretend they were a doctor and sell sex ed materials, and they'd four wall it and they'd go town by town by town, just one step ahead of the cops. People would go to see uh, an educational film about having a baby that shows graphic sexual uh, interplay. And that was the best you could do in 1936. And so it's, it's about that. And it combines that with evangelism uh, and uh, a, a mentally handicapped 16-year-old uh, uh, who becomes the center of it. Oh, I, would, I would love to see yeah. that. My uncle is a minister, actually, knew fall. Oh, wow. Yeah, he and Falwell were uh, friends. I turned down a full ride to go to Liberty. Long yeah. time ago. Which Falwell? Older, dead one. Oh, the dead one. Okay. He's not the pool boy. My uncle's not the yeah. pool boy. No, it's the one okay. that had sex with his mom in the outhouse. <laughs> that was one of many. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One of many. Here come the attorneys. Right. I know. That, not true. All right. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're not going to dig his ass up and sue us. So no. go ahead, Chet. No. Right. So you, you mentioned your work on amazing stories. Yeah. And, you know, I got, I got to tell you, so um, preparing for the interview, 
Um, I've been watching amazing stories again and, you know, kind of re revisiting how much I love it. And I have a, I have a six and a four year old. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And I sit down and they were curious about what I was watching and they sit down with me and I showed them um, the sitter and the gribble. Ah. Two of the stories that you wrote and Mick watching their faces um, oh. on those episodes was just an amazing experience for me, especially uh, this, you know, the sitter was just this morning, Mick. Uh, I got him oh, up wow. ready for I got him up ready for school, and I said, "Do you all want to watch another amazing story?" And they're like, "Yeah, Daddy." I'm like, "Okay, well, there's this great one called about a babysitter, a magical babysitter," and they were just I they wouldn't eat their breakfast, they wouldn't get dressed. I had to actually pause it mid episode, Mick. Oh, to, great! To get them out of the out of the out of the just they were completely sucked into that, and that's you know your storytelling. Well, thank you. I mean, both of those story ideas were Spielberg's ideas, but the scripts he... he yeah, the scripts, yeah. And, you know, you get Joe Dante directing The Greeble with a Rob Bottin suit and all that stuff, too. There's a lot of people who contribute to the magic. But, yeah, that was kind of a period that people don't associate me with because of all of the really horrific stuff I've done for the last couple right. of decades it skips over the Amblin stuff, the battery's not included. Although Hocus Pocus certainly has only grown over yeah. the years, not lessened in its popularity. And I do want to, I do want to talk about batteries not included in just a little bit, but um, back on, I, I do want to, I've, I've buttered you up with the, 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 <laughs> the ones you liked. Yeah. No, 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 no. I want to, I want to tell you, you're also single-handedly responsible um, for one of the few instances of giving me nightmares as a child. <laughs> oh, good. That um, makes me proud. Which time? Now you know why he's bald. It's all <laughs> her fault. Thanks Ask for the extra. Actually, yeah. he's sucking up your hair, Chad. <laughs> so Fail. go to the head of the class. Hair vampire, yeah. Yes. Oh, go to the head of the class. Is by far, sir, one of the most traumatizing and scary experiences <laughs> I've had for watching and I know that your story combined with Robert Zemeckis, but what was your inspiration for that story? I have to ask because it, it, it really did. It terrified me as a kid. There was a lot of talk about back mask, uh, back masking uh, on, on playing records backwards and yep. all of these rituals and things that were to summon Satan and all of these things that were going on with uh, Al Gore's wife, Tipper Gore, ran a campaign against horror and rock and roll and Satanism yeah. and all this nasty stuff. And so it was just a backlash on that. I came up with the story and then I wrote it with my friend, Tommy McLaughlin, mm -hmm. who you may know from Friday, Friday the 13th. 13th. Yeah. yeah. Really great, wonderful guy and a great filmmaker. And then when they booked uh, Zemeckis, because Steve Spielberg went to all of his friends to direct episodes and to be able to get Zemeckis on board after, you know, and watching Back to the Future being shot on the same lot and all of that, yeah. it was thrilling. And he and his writing partner at the time, Bob Gale, once they came on board, of course, they're writers and, and they did revisions on it and the like. And they shot so much stuff that they turned it into a one hour episode, one of two one hour episodes mm -hmm. instead of a half hour. With Spielberg, so, right? Yes, the other one was the mission, or, or yeah, the mission was. Uh, yeah, mission. was Keep yourself on, yeah. And um, Casey Samasco. So it was a little bit, yeah, Casey Samasco. 
but it was a little bit padded, you know, the opening footage that he's watching on TV of the British uh, zombie movie mm -hmm. goes on a bit. And the House on Haunted Hill goes on a bit. Oh, and the zombie one was Mirror Mirror, sorry. House on Haunted Hill was in, in uh, Go to the Head of the Class. Yeah. Mirror Mirror, is that that's Scorsese, right? Scorsese, and I actually, it was originally written by the guy who wrote After Hours, Joe Minion. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> everybody wanted something different from it, so I actually did a page one rewrite on that. And the script that Scorsese shot was the, the script that I wrote. And I was brand new at writing for television and being a story editor on the show. And the producers said, you know, you don't really want to take credit on that at this point you know it's a, it's a oh shit i could have had credit as the writer on a martin scorsese episode but what a uh, rat bastard but now we know <laughs> now we yeah, now we know i rewatched it too chad's absolutely right scared the shit out of me when i was a kid and it used to play even after the show was off it would play on on cable later yeah. as that two-hour amazing stories movie with oh the, the movie yeah yeah, yeah you're movie. right if you guys remember but that shot, the opening shot, and uh, Robert Zemeckis is a genius. Oh, so. But good. it's right out of Back to the Future. It's the same opening shot from Back to the Future. It's the same okay. opening shot. It's just in a different room, right? Yep, yep. No, he, he did an uh, amazing job. And, you know, the first thing that I ever wrote that ever got produced was an episode of Amazing Stories, the main attraction, the magnet. Mm -hmm. And to watch that and Mirror Mirror, to be on the set watching Martin Scorsese directing Sam Waterston, doing dialogue that I wrote. It's like, imagine that feeling. Um, it was just like Stephen King and I were going to do Rose Red with Spielberg. And mm -hmm. so I met King at his hotel and they had sent a limo to take us to the Universal lot. And we're driving up to the gate at Universal and King says to me, wow, what would those people outside say if they knew we were going to meet with Steven Spielberg? And I said, Steve, what would people say if they knew I was with Stephen King going to meet with Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you know, being the zealot of horror. Yeah, but um, you kind of are six degrees of Kevin Bacon when it comes to that. I mean, yeah, like one degree. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you really are only one degree. I'm two degrees from Kevin Bacon because he was in Animal House with John Landis directing. So. So what happened with Rose Red? Because that was ultimately made with Craig Baxley, right? Yeah, yeah. Craig did a bunch of the which is a great. I love the first two nights. Yeah, it's that third it, night kind of. It's awfully long, and it was hugely expensive. It was a forty million dollar miniseries, and it looks it. But originally, it was a feature script that King had written, mm -hmm. and Spielberg had script problems with it, and. He felt, you know, here's an 800-pound gorilla on either side. I'm a 50-pound chimp in the middle. And they basically agreed to disagree and not make the movie. And issues that Spielberg had with that script were logic and character-based, things like that. And things that when they remade The Haunting, it was exactly everything that Spielberg thought was wrong with Rose Red <laughs> put into The Haunting remake. Well, I swear so, Go ahead. I thought that that was what they were originally going to do was a remake of The Haunting with Stephen King writing it, correct? No, he did an original and oh, okay. uh, it was inspired by The Haunting, I'm sure, yeah. because it was, you know, that kind of ghost story. But um, so 
five years later when King got the rights back after the option ran out with Amblin for a movie, mm-hmm. they decided to do it as a miniseries and, and I wasn't available. And, and um, um, so Craig Baxley and Steve did uh, a handful of, of movies together too for television. One really good one, uh, Storm of the Century. Yes, Storm of the Century was Not one. That this is any of your work. I just really like Storm of the Century. No, it was it was offered to me, and I was busy developing Desperation as a feature and couldn't take it on. And by the way, I didn't oh, actually. That's the one that cost. Sorry, that's the one that cost forty million dollars. Rose Red was not that expensive. Storm of the Century was outrageously expensive. But it's beautiful. And that's one where King uh, often, and I didn't mean to talk about Stephen King, but this is great. This is the reason why you have a conversation and see where it goes, right? So with with Stephen, you know, a lot of the uh, criticism is about the final or the third act or how it ends, a lot of it. with, and, And some of it I understand. But Storm of the Century has one of those endings that I think is perfect. And I don't know how anyone could ever complain about. Well, Steve once said to me when we were making Sleepwalkers, he said, I'm not very good at endings. And I said, you know, that's really not true. Um, But in the case of Sleepwalkers, it was an original screenplay. And the studio was not satisfied with the ending. And so um, I said, if we're going to do a reshoot, let's do something for the opening that explains it a little bit more so you understand it better. So the opening scene with Mark Hamill was not in the original script. And the ending scene with the uh, Machen in the car, uh, that did not originally end it, it ended earlier. And so um, I uh, offered to do it and uh, I wrote the opening scene and King wrote the ending scene. Because I said, if we're going to do a reshoot, please let me do something at the front. And uh, of course, everything had to meet with King's approval. And so it's much more potent the way it is now than the way it originally said. Yeah, because it sets up everything. It sets. I, I saw that in the theater opening night Friday. I was, I'll, let's see, I'm 42, so I was probably too young. But God bless that. Remember the divorce? They used to drop me off quite a bit. And that was yeah, the great yeah. thing. Mom would <laughs> drop me off, which was fantastic. And I, uh, <clears throat> I, I also heard or read that you, you're the one that came up with the opening, right? For the credits. Uh, with the, the history uh, of the sleepwalkers. That was your idea. Both, yeah. The Chillicothe encyclopedia of uh, whatever yeah. supernatural knowledge. Yeah. That was something I came up with and I, I wrote that title card and then King said, let me make a few tweaks to it. So, so he did a little adjusting on it, but that alone explained things that are not explained in the movie at all. Um, yeah, no, it helps quite a bit, and, and I think Sleepwalkers is underrated. Sorry, James. No, no, no. Well, uh, James, before you go, side note real quick, uh, Joe talked about how he was introduced to Sleepwalkers. Let me tell you how I was introduced to Sleepwalkers. I, I, on VHS, with my mom. Oh, great. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the second chapter in my Motherfucker trilogy. <laughs> it's not been completed yet, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's going to lead to an odd segue to my question. Yeah, go for it, James. Go ahead. Try to top that, James. Well, no, actually, you've mentioned in other interviews uh, that one of the things that your your mother allowed you to read comic books encouraged it because you were reading. Uh, My mother had the same exact approach. So when I heard that interview, I was like, well, I've got to ask, what were you reading? What sort of comic books attracted you? And what did that echo forward as you went on? 
there weren't really that many horror comics when I was a kid. I was after the ECs, so I never was really exposed to them. There were occasional things that like the Carlton comics, they were kind of a really third rate comic book company with third rate, second rate uh, writers and artists, but they were unafraid of doing horror. However, the comics code was in full play by the time I was reading comics. So they were heavily censored. But I read DC. I didn't read Marvel comics when I was a kid. I read all the DC stuff. And so I loved Superman and the Bizarro World and and the Joker and uh, all that stuff. Uh, And I didn't really read the funny books. My my sister liked all the Disney comics, the Golden Key comics. But uh, mostly I, I read DC and I drew before I started writing. My father had been an art student and very, very good at it, but never was able to make his living doing art. And so um, that was the first thing I did and showed any ability with. But once I started writing, started writing around the age of 12, I, I quit drawing. But I, I loved the comic form at that time. I, less so interested since I've been a filmmaker because movement and dialogue and, and pacing and all of that is so much more of storytelling than looking at panel by panel. I have a lot of respect for that, but I rarely read them these days. With with that, and, and kind of you talking about uh, these evil things we do, and obviously doing screenplays, and, and the comics being in the background, uh, is there a different way you approach when you think about writing a novella, a novel, versus a screenplay? And then how does that kind of play out you know, do you have you ever sat down to write one and it be like, well, this needs to be the other? Uh, in the thinking stage, not so much once I start writing something. There is a difference in the process in one way. In most ways, it's the same. I sit down and try and entertain myself. But I also have a love of language and a love of words and, and a playful use of words that in my fiction, I'm allowed to do that because I'm weaving atmosphere, I'm weaving emotions, I'm I'm getting... I, I mention this a lot in interviews, but one of the most, um, uh, one of the greatest impressions I got from about writing was from Richard Matheson when he was working on Amazing Stories. And he said to me, fiction is internal and film is external. And there's a huge difference in that when you're writing for the page, the love of language gives you your painting with words. And you're reading words in a way that you don't want to bore the reader. You want them to be entertaining. You know, my, my fiction is, if you've read the books or anything, that it's, it's a playful use of language, even when it's deadly serious. Um, but when you're writing a screenplay, you're writing a blueprint. But still, the point is to get the reader to want to turn the page to the next page. So even my screenwriting may be a little bit overwritten, but in a way to keep atmosphere and tension and, and, and try and have the experience of watching a movie rather than just a blueprint that everybody's going to be working off of. So the process is the same. I'll come in in the morning and write a bunch of pages, uh, have lunch and write a couple of pages and done for the rest of the day. Um, but, and, and it's the same process of typing at my keyboard and all of that, but but in a way, it's more entertaining to me to write the fiction because I'm using words that the reader will 
be reading as well, rather than just saying he walks in the door and goes to the window and throws a chicken under the car, you know, something like that. You, you, you do it playfully. There, there, that's the scene of my next movie. That's the opening. Love it. <laughs> well, I'm a I, vegan. It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, 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 I managed to bring this, uh, this author up once per episode. So I've got to squeeze it in. Oh, um, David, don't you stare. Oh. You're going to steal my next question. Well, you interviewed years ago Harlan Ellison, and Harlan Ellison has that great line, write for yourself, get a job to do, you know, get a job to make a living, but write for yourself. So when you were talking about, are you entertaining yourself, it automatically cued that quote up in my head. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I also just want to say thank you for the Ellison uh, interview. Joe, you can go ahead and ask your question. Well, James and I have, a, oh, everybody who ever met Ellison should have an Ellison story. And I had another question lined up, but I'll go with it. Of James and I have an Ellison story. We're not going to tell it. We'll tell it to you someday if we ever. You should come to Scarefest. We'll totally do your panel. I, I actually like what you do when you go to conventions. You because you can watch it on social media. You explore places and use it as to travel. And we've talked about if we got to do more than just our few hundred miles where we kind of cover. That's what we would do. We would get there a day early and enjoy and, and view things. But Absolutely. You have a good Harlan Ellison story. James and I got James got hit, and I got cursed out, which I yeah. I I knew I was about to get. But do you have a because Not that interview went one. really well? Well, we we were friends, you know. Um, yeah. Years ago, yeah, I, I've got several Harlan. <laughs> um, we asked. We had Peter David. Peter David did almost three. I, I don't. Do you, I don't know if you know who Peter David is, the writer. He's a yeah. comic book writer. He and Ellison are really close. He did almost three hours with us. And he goes, which one do you want to know? <laughs> right. Well, like Josh Olson is a friend. The, Josh Olson. The writer and podcaster. He, and he and Harlan were as close as two people could be without being lovers. Um, and that we know of. So, yeah, that we know. But no, Josh is a great guy and has nothing but respect for, for Harlan. And I have a lot of respect for Harlan. But he could be a pain in the ass too. He's curmudgeon. Yeah, curmudgeon. I think he was proudly curmudgeon. But one story I had, this was before I married Cynthia. Um, And I was doing publicity at Universal when I put together a screening of The Thing Uh and invited Harlan and other people. Uh, And it was a big screening. First time it was going to be seen by an audience. And so I'm sitting there and somebody, and I had a date with me, a beautiful young woman. And uh, so uh, I'm sitting there and then Harlan and his date come and sit down and go, wait, are you tall? Are you gonna swamp through the whole thing? Cause I'm six feet tall and Harlan was famously not. Um, so he, uh, yeah. Very short. So he was kind of joking and kind of not. And so I said, don't worry, Harlan. I, oh, Mick, oh, it's Mick, okay, good. But you're, you're gonna slump, right? Don't worry, I will, not a problem. And so he was just kind of saying wise ass jokes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one thing was, who's this? Why, your date is beautiful. She's much too good for you. And I turned around to Harlan and, and it's the one time I did something, you always think of, oh, if only I had done. Yep. I turned around to Harlan, I said, Harlan, I have never been anything but supportive of you and tell people how great you are and get you into screenings, do these things. That really hurts. And so later I went to the restroom 
And he leaned over to my date and said, I'm so, so sorry. You know, he, I was kidding, right? You know, I was kidding. And it was, it was like Harlan in apology mode, which you never see. And of course, he didn't say it to me. He said, no, of course not. <laughs> but yeah, that's my Harlan story for now. Oh, yeah. He, he, he was, I mean, he was one of the greatest writers of all time. He was great and a brilliant guy. And his but, columns for the LA Weekly were, uh, or the uh, LA Free Press were. Yeah, the, yeah, really the glass teat. Yeah, the glass teat was fantastic. I have no mouth and I must scream. I mean, really great stuff. But, uh, sorry, Chad, go ahead. Oh, I thought you were about to ask something. No, no, uh, well, I can. Uh, well, yeah, no, yeah. no, no, you look I like, like you're your microphone in. lights up when you're, you, when you're on. You know? yeah, oh, yeah. I think he turns it off and on just to get attention. But, yeah, sorry. No, um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, back into your filmmaking career, because I don't know if you realize, uh, guys, I don't know if you realize this, with Nick Garris, Bonehead Weekly has officially become the greatest resource for critters too. <laughs> we have we have talked to production designer Mick Strawn, uh, great uh, special effects Andre Ellingson, and uh, uh, creature and makeup uh, creature and uh, special effects uh, wizard prop master uh, Michael Moore. Yeah, yes. and each one has told us a critters two story. So I know you probably get this question a lot, but I just want to just one critters two story before you start a little background yeah. strawn the production designer is a dear yeah. friend of ours and actually made a lot of connection for us a few years ago yes. and it's been wonderful and he's been on the show several times and we talk a lot but he has a critters two story that i may send you that i don't know that you know if he's ever told you about an explosion okay. on set oh well uh, i i have one about an explosion at the hamburger factory you go right ahead. Oh, we're ready to go. Yeah. Well, you know, we had a, a special effects guy named Marty Bresen. Mm -hmm. No, was that? Yeah, that's his name. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I don't want to denigrate anyone's work. Big burly guy, you know, ah, this is going to be great. Ah, it's good. And we were blowing up the hamburger factory. Yeah. So uh, he's kind of a blustery guy and say, hey, here, you take the button. You blow it. And I said, that's okay, Marty. You are a professional you're the one with the uh ammo license all of that stuff so you do no 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 it'll be fun you'll do it and so he gave me the button and we're counting down and i hit it and nothing happened and so we did it again and i hit it and nothing happened finally figures it out and for the third time i hit it and the first thing blows like crazy it's beautiful but it's supposed to blow again and again and again. But that explosion burned up the wires that triggered the other explosions, which he had not planned for. So um, that's why you see us recut from different angles, the same explosion happening over and over and over. So that's my- uh, Joe, that's my I will let you tell Mick. Oh, no, no, I'm, oh, no, no, cue Chad. Mick no, 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 no. has the other side of that story. Yes. <laughs> Of why that didn't blow two times, Mick. You need. You, we need to send you that audio clip. You, oh, you but, can tell. Well, I, apparently he was he was the himself, not Mick, but the other one was being a little bit of a not a nice person. A dick. There you go. <laughs> he was being a dick, and they were having a conversation. <laughs> okay, then bleep my mention of his name. <laughs> No, 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 no. I think it's fine because I can't remember. We just know Mick and I can't remember the other guy's name either. 
but yeah. I need to go back and re-listen to it because actually I never do you listen to your podcast later on I think after it's all said and done I may go back but people ask me questions and I now know what it's like to be asked Shatner what it must be like to be asked what was that like in 19 well I have no damn clue I don't remember I don't listen to myself or go back and watch anything no, you experience it once and, it, it, and it's, it's kind of over. And if I go back, I just hear what I should have said and what I should have asked and where it should have went. Which yeah, well, and, and for me, I'm there for the guests. I, I'm there to be the audience as well. I'm supposed to be the eyes and the ears of the audience. Right. Get information out. It's not the Mick Garris show. It's the podcast interviewing these people. Exactly. Right. And, yeah. uh, and I learned something from everyone, which is why I do it. It's certainly not to make a living because as you well know, <laughs> podcasting is money. not lucrative this, <laughs> unless you're Adam Carolla or somebody. Oh, well, yeah, but you, the secret to, uh, he did give me, he didn't give it me, but he did give the one piece of advice. The secret to any successful podcast is to be famous first. Yes, exactly. And that's, I started out at podcast one, which is mostly radio and TV stars doing yeah. them. They asked me to do a podcast and it was like, you know, we had beautiful facilities and we did it well, but they didn't know how to deal with our, our niche audience. You know? No, no, I completely understand that. Which leads me to another question because Glenn asked several questions that I wanted to ask when you were on Good Movie Monday a couple of weeks yeah. ago. And he's a rat bastard Australian who stole a couple of my questions. And I hope he listens to this later on. They've but been, yeah. he's a very nice person, actually. Very and nice. I appreciate him for finally getting this done so we could talk. Yeah. Well, I couldn't not do this after all the nice things you said on his show. Well, yes, it was a kiss-ass note, but it, we meant it. We I meant really every word of it. Psycho 4 is, is truly, there's no reason Psycho 4 should be that good because it's Psycho 4. No, it's. I've always, I don't mean that in any disrespect, sir. But <laughs> no, I, I, you know, and I don't do it out of ego. But I always tell people it's better than any movie with a number four in the title has any right. To it. Has any right to be? It has so many layers. It works so well. I watched it once again. Remember that whole divorce got a lot of freedom. No latchkey yeah. kid. I watched it on Showtime when it premiered. Ah, wow, nineteen ninety. Yeah. yeah, which while I'm talking about, it, I want to ask you a question. My my mother grew up in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and I didn't realize till I was listening to that you actually shot it in Orlando. So I'm assuming you shot it when they were building Universal. They just built Universal Studios there, correct? They were built. They had built it. It hadn't opened yet, and mm -hmm. you know they were uh, the commissary was getting its uh, practice together before they opened, so we would get our meals at the commissary for like. Uh, 10% of the cost, you know, uh, because it was giving them practice to get it in shape as a cafeteria. Um, and it opened while we were still shooting. And I think that's one of the reasons that Universal had us shoot there, because it would be an actual attraction. Come to Universal Studios Florida and see a movie being made. And it was a franchise. People know who Tony Perkins is. People knew who Psycho, yes, what yes. Psycho was. They and built so, a house there on the lot. Yeah, for using the same blueprints, mm -hmm. uh, the house and the motel. And so we, uh, we had the luxury of doing that, but I think we were intended more as a theme park attraction than as a production. So uh, we had a lot to deal with. There's a very emotional scene between Henry Thomas and Olivia Hussey outside the house by the 
the where she's pounding carpets on the on the clothesline. Just 50 feet away, there's a police tape with a hundred tourists gawking and watching this thing while it's this very emotional breakdown between mother and son. Was it, was it, did you shoot it in 89? Because if it was the summer of 90, I could have been, uh, there could have been a short little fat kid walking right by. It would have been me because I, it was we that shooting. Summer opening. Then we shot it uh, in, we ended, I think, July 3rd. Yeah, wow. it could have been. This yeah. started triggering these memories in my mind because I got to go to that opening because we went to see my grandmother that summer. Wow. Sorry, anyway. We're shooting and you just passed us by. I just passed, okay. But I, we just have such a love of Psycho 4, Gremlins 2, or Gremlins 2, uh, Critters 2 being Critters the best two. Easter movie ever made. Yeah. <laughs> you stole my line. A whole lot of competition, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, but I do got to ask about Psycho 4 because, uh, you know, you famously, you got, uh, or from, from hearing previous interviews with you, you got a lot of the same props from the original, like, for example, the mother's bed. You got that for the movie and it was like insured. But being yeah, a $100,000, yeah. Yeah, being a cinephile like us, like, uh, you know, for example, I got to go to Michael Moore. I mentioned him. Uh, he let me come to his uh, studio, his, his prop house in, in, in Hollywood. Um, and it was one of the more, one of the best and most dorky experiences of my life. I actually got to hold, I got to hold an original tricorder, you know, and from the, the show and so, but, you know, going on set and Psycho Force, you know, did you ever geek out a little bit? Like, did you sit on the edge of the bed and just jump up and down and go, tee <laughs> Oh, I, I was in heaven the whole time. I mean, to, to actually, first of all, Hilton Green, who was my producer, was Hitchcock's first AD on the original Psycho. Oh. A wonderful man who used to head up physical production at Universal. Uh, and Tony Perkins, for all of the complications of working with him, it was a thrill and he was a terrific guy. But all of these pieces, and I have, um, you know, candy corn bags that were made <laughs> off of the original print template um, on the original movie that they printed up for us. So Amazing. that is what I've got. I've got. I actually have mother's corpse. You can't see it, but it's on the other side of my office here, sitting in my director's chair from Psycho 4 with the prop butcher knife in her hands. That's amazing. When this interview is over, you are going to turn that, right? We're just going to- <laughs> Well, I'm on a desktop here. Oh, so. fine, whatever. But I'll take a picture of it and send it to you so well, you can- That I appreciate. <clears throat> I'm sorry, <laughs> I was just about to ask because I, I, earlier, I was going to say Glenn stole a lot of my questions, especially when it came to the Z channel and starting out. And I was watching you the other day, and I love the freaking one. Oh, it never aired. Right. I know. I, and then I, when I started, I didn't know that until I listened to you on Gilbert Godfrey that it never aired, that that's just your version. And as much as he just shits on Exorcist 2, which it is a bad movie. Although I think Exorcist 3, I'm with you. It's it's based on Legion. It's written and directed by William Peter Blatty. If you ever read the Legion book, it's a fairly faithful adaptation to his book. And Brad Dourif just kicks ever, just so much ass in that movie. Just Completely. steals the movie. Just steals the movie. Has one great jump scare. I, I think Exorcist 3 is a really good movie. But I actually like Exorcist 2, even though it's not a great movie. I like it. Really? Yeah, it's judgmental. You're the filmmaker, but it's so bonkers. Well, not as a filmmaker, just, a, you know, it, it tries so hard to not repeat the exorcist. 
and Richard Burton's performance is so weird and and there are just amazing visuals in there. The photography by William Fraker in Exorcist 2 is really striking and remarkable. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it. It's been a long I'm not recommending it as a movie. But <laughs> No, no, no. I would have to go back. It's Borman, right? So I need to go back and rewatch it and see if I if I find any of that in there. I could just remember watching it as a young man almost falling asleep several times setting through it. Yeah. It's it's not a propulsive thriller. So it's definitely worth seeing. Anyway, to yes, enough. Back to freaking. No, 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 no. We've <clears> had some, as our friend Glenn, whom you've met, would use the word prickly pears. We've had a couple. One, there was a few weeks ago, and we got through. Actually, we buttered him up a little bit, and we got through it. Because you want to get, like you said earlier, you want to get the best out of someone. When And I know that you probably have no memory of this. But watching it as someone who's probably novice and doesn't do it as much as you do, interview him and say, so there are those people that say, and then he gets pissed. Who are they? Who are they? Yeah. And it's, you're a very young man. So I'm well, watching I was it a total again. novice. I was much more of a novice than you guys. I was and, watching it again and just watching you be, do you have recollection of, do you remember it? Oh, I sweat thinking about it. I Me really, because you were looking, it's like, well, there, there are there and you don't have the names either. No, I didn't have the names. It was something I thought was worth bringing up because I had read a couple of reviews that felt like it was really exploited. And in some ways it is, but yeah, despite of course. the fact that the movie is one of a kind and fantastic and iconic and just as, and the point was to get conversation. I had done print interviews before, but not TV. Mm -hmm. Even though I'd been performing in a band as a lead singer, or totally, yeah, which it, it was totally different from sitting and doing it in front of a TV camera and feeling so awkward looking at the camera, making introductions like this rather than looking. Now I'm looking at you. There I'm looking at the camera. Yeah, right. Right. And so doing that for television, where it's just me. And this guy who's made this iconic, phenomenal movie as well as others before it. Right. And just being naive and asking a question. And I've since interviewed him again on the postmortem TV show 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot more fun. And I was more able to ask questions in a way that did not make him defensive. Uh, and knew better than to even try something like that and still get really good information without feeling like I'm kind of catering to self-censorship. But yeah, I remember it very well. It was like uh, 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 inside. I don't know what it looked like outside, but I was a, a nervous wreck when that happened. Well, I, it, it just makes me, even at 42 and having a professional career, because you have to make a living outside of this. It just made me feel, it just made me smile. <laughs> I was how things can become just a clusterfuck and a shit show so quickly. And it's happened to it me on 27, stage. 27 or 28 when that happened. Yeah. Wow. It's happened to me on stage, you know, moderating. There's three or 400 people and somebody will get up. Either I'll take it away that they didn't necessarily want to go. And it's the reason why we ask you, is there anything you don't want to talk about? Anything you do want to talk about? You always try to prepare, right? And yeah. 
it's just nice. It, it it made my day watching it. So yeah, Chad, yeah. I squirmed like crazy. Yeah, I squirmed more than a Jeff Lieberman movie. And and his sorcerer, I, as much as I love the the Exorcist, the sorcerer is one of a kind. I love sorcerer, and I like it more than Wages of Fear. You know, the original. Um, people who saw that first would argue with me because I saw sorcerer first. But I saw it at the Chinese theater on opening weekend, the same place that played The Exorcist, the same place that put, in fact, Sorcerer replaced Star Wars at the Chinese theater. And it did so poorly that it got booted the next week to another theater uh, and they put Star Wars back. Well, Josh Olson has a great quote when he does on Trailers from Hell. I think he's the one, he did a Sorcerer Trailers from Hell. And he says, I like to believe there's a reality where there was a little B movie that came out that summer that people remember fondly called Star Wars. And Sorcerer was the huge <laughs> <Yeah>. film <laughs> that there's an alternate reality. And cinema took a drastic change <laughs> for the next 40 years. <laughs> well, it's interesting because giving it that title Sorcerer and... And at that time, on the side of the Chinese theater, they do huge paintings of the posters for that. There's Sorcerer on there. It had just played The Exorcist, or, or Star Wars. Star Wars. You Sorcerer from the director of The Exorcist. You do not expect what kind of movie it is. You don't know it's named after a fucking truck. Exactly. Exactly. I, I have still, I, I, I read his book, and I still don't know that I understand why he named it Sorcerer. Yeah, I, uh, it may have been a commercial nod to his past with The Exorcist, but I don't know. I don't know. But I do know it's a masterpiece. I love yes. that. Yeah, it is. It is fantastic. It's, it's where a director, kind of like a Werner Herzog, goes crazy, and we're getting this done in the middle of the jungle by God. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. Uh, what, what Friedkin wants, Friedkin gets. <laughs> Absolutely. He and... Chad, go ahead with your question. I was about to go off. Oh, no, no, it's okay. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I got three really that I'm that I'm dying to ask. But um, you know, I'm going to ask about horror making, horror filmmaking in general. Um, we have seen just an evolution of horror. You know, you know, back in the '80s and early '90s when we were watching horror, you know, it was kind of you know not, it wasn't mainstay. It wasn't you know something. It was kind of as Bruce Campbell would say, I believe it would believe it was Bruce Campbell. Correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, that, that working in horror was kind of like, do, you might as well have been doing porn. It was, it was about a notch above porno. Yeah. 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 Especially and, in the eighties. Yeah. And there was, a, it was right here above porno it was porn <laughs> and here was horror. And you know, we, we hear the same, I believe Quentin Tarantino said, you can look at horror to determine Joe, right. You can look at horror and determine what decade you're in or the, or, the western, we're in. Westerns, especially. Westerns. Um, are, are the greatest of, this is a off, this is a seventies Western. This is a fifties yeah. Western. But you know, and currently we're in this insurgence of really deep psychological horror films like Jordan Peele and Get Out, uh, Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, Jennifer Kent with Babadook and oh, uh, oh. Uh, Babadook is jarring. It's so good. It is amazing. The and Invitation I, uh, by Karen Kusama. Uh, oh, dark, the, a Dark Song. Um, I just watched A Dark Song three weeks ago. James bought it for me. I do a review for uh, Scarefest, our local uh, horror convention, and it's weekly, and I had I'd never seen it, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. 
it's pretty amazing. And the, the uh, Freaks on Netflix is great. The Ritual. Yeah. I mean, there's so much. All the Ritual, yeah. There's grown-up horror. And I refuse to use the term elevated horror because I think it cheapens everything in the genre. To it say. really does. But uh, there is horror was never intended for teenagers. You know, it was always a dramatic form throughout the history of, of literature and cinema that, and outside of the U.S. and outside of the studios, <clears throat> there is plenty of horror that's meant for grown-ups. Mm -hmm. And if you're talking about the major studios, you know, it's teen horror and, yeah. and PG-13, you know, franchises. And I think that is the absolute... Uh, uh, nadir of horror. Yeah. And maybe, but I don't know if I answered your question or no, if you I was just kind of curious of where you think, where you think the next level, the next stage is going to go because I don't think anybody saw like the Babadook, the invitation, the invitation is crazy. It's all, it's almost two movies put into one story. You do not see it going in the way that it did in, in Midsommar. It's perfect. I've seen I've seen the invitation three times, and I every time I see it, it's like seeing it fresh. You know. Yeah, it ever, you you catch something new. I've watched it. I've, I haven't watched it three. I've watched it twice because that first time I watched it, I I, I sit there and I was, what did what did I just watch? Yeah. And yeah. I just had to watch it again to to catch these to see if there was like pieces that I was missing, and so it's. I, you know, as far as where it's going to go, whatever is a big success, we'll get a lot of people imitating it. Yeah. And then there will be sequels to it. And, it, you know, on that level. But the great thing about the era we live in, it's the great and the bad thing about where we live, when we live, is that there's, all of it is available to us instantly. You know, the, the opportunity to watch great independent horror movies in a theater is pretty much dead. Um, if it can't justify a giant box office, nobody's going to run a campaign for an independent horror movie that's really original and aimed at adults yep. uh, because they're just not going to get it. Kids go to the movies to see it and, and great. But I think even young people can appreciate an intelligent, well-told, frightening story, supernatural or otherwise. So I, I I think it would be folly to even attempt to guess where it's yeah. going to go. But the good news is horror has never been more diverse. And I don't mean by gender or by ethnicity, but just in its styles. There are ghost stories, there are psychological horrors, there are monster movies, there, there's, you know, um, just all kinds of, of fables and, and everything you can think of, and people do. So in a way, horror has become much more inexpensive to make because the tools you can use, Steven Soderbergh used an iPhone 7 to shoot Unsane, um, you know, and, and it looked great and played in theaters and was beautiful and, and fantastic. Um, so the good news and the bad news, anybody can make a movie. Yeah. So that's great news if you're really talented and have the people with you to make something special, like Host. Host is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And that's all done just like we're doing this. On I Zoom. haven't got to see it yet. I just actually got a subscription to Shutter. Ah, it's great. Uh, now you can see Nightmare Cinema as often as you like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a plug at the end, I promise. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Um, but um, 
you know, there's so many different ways of telling horror and now you can consume it either, you know, I'm looking at you on a 27 inch iMac, but I have an 86 inch screen in the house with surround sound and all of that stuff. And Ragger. you can watch it in 4K, yep. all of that. Or, you know, I'm not a guy who watches on an iPad or an iPhone. I'll watch it on an iPad on an airplane if yep. we ever fly again. Right. But, um, you know, uh, you're able to see really great stuff from around the world at the click of a button. And how great is that? It's know? fantastic. But the issue is it's never been easier, but it's never been harder to make money at it. That's really true. That's really true. And I can tell you, even through Nightmare Cinema, as high profile as that was, it was almost entirely watched online. And it's really difficult. That was a very low budget movie, but it's we, very difficult to make its money back. We actually got it and it played our Halloween festival last year. Oh, great. Awesome. Which is like, so there you go. We gave you a, a few shekels. Yay. <laughs> now. <laughs> But we probably gave it to you for the festival. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, no, no. We actually, we purchased. It's our own little, we invite a few people over. We do a Halloween marathon. And uh, we okay. always pick a selection. And of course you got picked. Oh, but, yeah. I, I, Chad, I know you have a couple. <laughs> and I know we're probably running low on time. But I've got to ask about two things. And then we'll come back. Um, make just let us know whenever we're, we need to start wrapping sure. it up. I want to make sure Chad gets his two questions. <laughs> but real quick, riding the bullet. Yeah, I know it's a Stephen King novella or short story. Short story, yeah. It's a Mick Garris film. And what I mean by that is, is I know that's based on that source material, but The Stand is Stephen King's The Stand. I think Riding the Bullet is Mick Garris's Riding the Bullet. Well, do you understand what you. I'm saying that? And I've posted online before, and I don't know. I truly think it's your most personal film. You changed it to the 60s, which made a lot more sense of him hitchhiking. But I've got to ask you, and you may not even know, but where emotionally did it, did it connect and where did it come from to make it so personal? Because I've read, I'm a huge King fan. We've done several episodes on him. I got him to sign my creep show. Long story short, I'm a huge fan, but that's Mick Garris is riding the bullet. Yeah. Well, it's, if you've noticed, it's the only time in my entire career I've ever taken a film by credit. Mm-hmm. And it's because, yes, the 30-page story it was based on was Stephen King's, but that story ends halfway into the screenplay. Right. And setting it in a different time, even though that was college, I graduated high school in 1969. Mm -hmm. um, when I read that, I had lost um, two brothers. No, one of my brothers had not passed away yet, but one had, and uh, my father. And having experienced death, having told stories about death and horror and monsters and how playful it is and how when it hits you personally, that it's not so much fun. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It's more meaningful than that. It's the end of a life of someone who you cared about, who was deeply involved in your own life. Mm -hmm. um, that story resonated with me because of that life and death choice, that Sophie's choice that the character had to make. So I felt, equating it with 1969, that's 30 years earlier than when the story was written and published in 99. <clears throat> so at that time, we were in the thick of Vietnam. Everything was, the world was also facing a life and death choice and did not choose particularly wisely at the time. But there was a lot of upheaval 
<clears throat> and so I thought equating this personal choice of life and death with a societal choice of life and death was important. And, you know, having experienced the, the loss of two brothers, both my parents now, a sister since then, um, it just felt like something I needed to tell, you know, and I enjoy sharing pain in art. Um, <clears throat> you know, when you write a, a horror story or a film or a novel or whatever, you want to connect with people on a, on a personal level and on a visceral level. You want to go places that you would be afraid to bear your soul publicly, but to do it in a movie through actors, um, conveying emotions that are not otherwise expressed. You know, the movie was by far my least successful film I've ever done. But I still get letters from people. I, I just lost my mother recently and I saw riding the bullet and I really identified with it. That makes it all worthwhile. You know, it was a $5 million movie, very inexpensively made, but with a cast who really cared. And I was very, very passionate about it. It took a lot to get it made. My agents thought when I wrote the spec script that they were going to sell it to the studios for a fortune. That didn't happen. It was much too, you know, well, is it The Shining or is it Stand By Me? And I said, why can't it be both? Yeah, right. <clears throat> so, so there's a long story of why it resonated. No, with me. no, it, it makes sense. I watched it when it came out. I loved it. I have the copy of it over here on my shelf. Oh, thank a, you. He's shut up, Chad. And then a, it's it's downstairs on my shelf because I've. It's <laughs> oh, funny that you get those letters because a few years ago I got really sick, and mm -hmm. was in the ICU for a week. And oh. serious pneumonia. It doesn't matter. I'm fine now. That's good news. It was on, buried at 3 a.m. AMC oh, wow. when they do the Monster Fest. Oh wow! And I hadn't watched it in a long time, and it just hit me. Even though I loved it, it hit me all over again. It was like reviewing. It, 2 a.m. by myself, face covered with a thing on, just being able to do this. It just hit me in a totally different way. And I never thought I'd ever be able to tell you that. So well, that means a lot to me. So thank you so much. Yeah, it, it's it's your most personal film. And I've always really appreciated it. As much as I love Desperation, the book, and I have tons of questions. Chad, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you All right, segue. This is getting too fucking sappy. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> That's then the other thing people don't recognize about the possibilities of horror. It's the, the ability to get in touch with an emotional base. Fear is so important and visceral to us. And, and it comes from our hearts as much as anything else. The fear of death is the most obvious one, but fear of relationships and fear of committal and, and the ability to be open about it. You know, it takes some bravery to write or, or make films about something really personal and to wear your heart on your sleeve as writing the bullet does. It may not have made for a successful film financially, but at least it's something that uh, people who are experiencing something similar can identify with. And, and, and I've gotten feedback that's incredibly gratifying despite its failure at the box office. Not well. And critics didn't like it either. So. Who gives a shit? <laughs> well, I can't. Yeah, <laughs> you can. It's it's it's. Uh, they didn't like Shall the thing. Shall I share with you my my favorite bad criticism of my work? Oh, please, please. do. Jesus, yes. A, a reviewer, and I don't remember who it was, but I remember the words. Uh, when Psycho Four came out, the critic said, "Director Garris is to Hitchcock what Peoria is to Paris." <laughs> 
It's a good line. It is. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's an arrow in my back. But <laughs> that's the problem with a lot of criticism is it's, it's, it's much more about good writing than it is good criticism. Yeah, which is fine. Yeah. <laughs> and I, if you do work for public consumption, you have to have the hide of a rhinoceros. Right. That's, oh, oh, my God. You should see some of the remarks we've gotten. We're nobody. It's like, is the fat oh, guy going to shut up? Sorry. <laughs> I can imagine. I've gotten some real shit. Ugh. There are a lot of Kubrick fans who hate my guts. So I don't understand but, that. Go I don't understand that at all because I don't understand why they can't both exist. They're both on the shelf right next right, to you. Right. Stephen King's right. Yeah. You didn't fuck up the book. The book is still right over there on the shelf. That's Your right. movie is right there across from Kubrick's. Who cares? That's right. Yep. And I think the people who love Kubrick have never read the book. Well, that's, that's another thing for discussion. You know, when it came out, the critics did not like the movie at all because most of them had read the book, which is a huge bestseller. Yeah. Uh, and, and the emotional core that is the King book is not represented in the Kubrick film. So they're two entirely different works of art and they both work on their own terms. But, um, you know, King is warm and Kubrick is cold. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. My wife could never get past Wendy Torrance. It's just, I, she, she didn't watch it till later in life till I introduced it to her. And she's like, well, she's so weak. That just, it pissed her off as a woman. Yeah, she's hard to take in, in 2020. Yeah, right. um, and even when we made The Shining in, in 1997, um, that was a character that was so outdated and outmoded. Maybe even in 1980, I don't know. Yeah, oh well, well. You did not have that so, problem in your movie. Go ahead, Chad. No. Uh, so speaking of Joe's wife, and alluding to me, <laughs> look, that is a horrible segue. Actually, yep. that was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. no. Uh, Leave the money I, on the counter. I'll find out if it works or not when I hear the question. Yeah, I mentioned it. I mentioned it earlier, and you you listened to us talk, but battery's not included. Um, is seriously, Mick, one of those magical moments of me as a kid. You know, I, I you know just seeing that movie, and I know you came up with the story, and then Brad Bird. Um, well, here's how that happened. Yeah, please do. I'm, Spielberg I'm, actually wrote it as a story idea for Amazing Stories. Okay, <clears throat> and so. I was going to write it, and then he said, we're going to make a movie. I want you to write a feature for me because I'm really happy with the work you've done on Amazing Stories. We're going to do either Ghost Kid or Batteries Not Included, which was originally called Grammy and Gramps and Company in the Spielberg two pages outline. Nice. So, I want to hear about Ghost Kid when you're done, but please. Yeah. I'll give you a, a little piece of my experience and what it became. But um, I, I chose Batteries Not Included. Uh, and so I wrote the script. And this is bearing my soul in an embarrassing way. But my script was 140 pages long. Wow. Most scripts are around 100. Right. And so I really put my heart and soul into it. My first feature assignment from Steven Spielberg. Right. And so he read it. And afterwards, he said, you know, it's a lot of good stuff here, but I got to tell you, it took me three sittings to read it. And that's not good news. So I panicked. I went home and did a rewrite, cut out 30, 35 pages, 
and really worked on it because you know I'm a writer an author and mm -hmm. so I was writing more than what was necessary as we talked about before for the blueprint and he's Spielberg and he's Spielberg and he was my first boss ever to hire me as a screenwriter so then he was very happy with my second draft and it got greenlit by the studio and then when he brought in Matthew Robbins to direct, Matthew is also a writer and had written Sugarland Express, which Spielberg directed, right. um, and Hal Barwood, his writing partner, uh, Matthew and Hal. And Matthew had done the Magnet Kid, the main attraction episode of Amazing Stories, and brought in as his rewriter partner, Brad Bird. So it started there and then the same thing happened. I wrote Batteries Not Included and then Matthew got the gig to direct it and brought in Brad Bird for the two of them to do a rewrite. So it happened twice with the same people. Wow. And then, you know, you petition the Writers Guild who gets credit on a screenplay and then they give it to various writers to read without the author's names on any of the scripts or drafts. And Stephen was kind enough to say, look, you can have full story credit. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to pursue story credit with this because you know Matthew and Brad are coming in and doing rewrites, but your script got the green light and so much of it still remains. You were such a major part of this that I want you to have full story credit, mm -hmm. which, so that's the story behind that. But yeah, it was also the same year that I wrote Hocus Pocus, which I wrote eight years before it was ever produced. So I was in my Spielberg, Disney, kind of family friendly, fantastical films of, of that era. Amazing. Yeah. So no, but then thank you for writing, uh, seriously battery. Uh, and jo the reason I mentioned Joe's wife is it's also a staple from her childhood as it is wow. mine. I, that, uh, was, uh, one of those VHS tapes that I wore out just because <laughs> I could not get enough of it. It was an amazing, and, and, and the ensemble cast was, uh, amazing. Yeah, I love any movie with an ensemble cast that works well together automatically sucks me in. Well, they did a great job. I never visited the set. It was done in New York. and on, ah. So uh, I, I didn't get to feel close to it, at least on Hocus Pocus, the first day of shooting I was there. <laughs> and, and that was a great experience. But there were 11 writers on that after I left. So. How much of it is yours still? Enough of it to get three credits, <laughs> uh, mostly. You know, the, the, they had 11 other writers and it kind of reverted back to what I had written. Um, and then they brought in Stephen Half to do a comedy polish mm -hmm. to, and more, more gags and jokes and the like. But the major structural differences is the kids are 16 and I wrote 12 year olds because it's a much more potent holiday for a 12 year old. It really marks a, a point in your maturation that takes place at 12 that by the time you're 16, you're stealing 12-year-olds Halloween candy. Exactly. You know, that's, yeah, I agree. I, I do have to say, I, I had the opportunity last year before everything started. Uh, there is a theater in Mississippi, the Sanger, that oh. has now made it an annual process of showing this. and They do it, and then a couple weeks later do the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Wow. Uh, and my wife, I, I have to mention Hocus Pocus or I get beat tonight. My wife will harm me because it is, it was one of her favorite films. And you mentioned earlier, it just keeps growing. 
It yeah. is uh, like she has a costume now. She was like, that wasn't a costume when I loved this when I was younger. And now she has a Winifred's costume, I believe. Oh, and wow. So, so uh, you know, what does it say that it, it just does keep growing? Like I notice now I'm getting mail from Disney saying, hey, you should buy more Hocus Pocus stuff. Yeah. For yeah. a movie that they dropped in the summer. Yeah. Yep. That uh, it was modestly successful to say the mm-hmm. most. Um, but to be a part of something that has become iconic, I mean, that even more than The Stand, even more than any anything else I've worked on, if I tell somebody that I wrote Hocus Pocus, everybody knows it, everybody gets excited, especially at a certain age level. Um, you know, if you grew up with it as a kid, what, what you love at 12 remains what you love at 50, you know? Um, those things happen. And, and for this to have become so iconic and to have been on the ground floor of the creation of that, is, it's pretty thrilling and it's an experience you don't have that often. I mean, they're remaking the stand now and so there's a lot more attention to that. And you've got a cameo. I do indeed, yeah. Unless it's on that, uh, like I said, the virtual editing room floor. Um, I don't know, but I have a feeling I'll, I'll survive. Yeah, it better not be. It's all yeah. so You could go ahead and just tell us what you were doing. I mean, obviously we're not going to let anyone know and our audience, <laughs> yeah. all yeah. three of them are going to keep quiet. Well, I don't have any dialogue, so it's... Is it more than what you're in in Quick and the Dead? um, Yes. Okay. A little bit. Well, they're about the same. About the same. At least I had to go back and do looping for the Quick and the Dead and got... (laughs) (laughs) Just to go, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Please tell me you've not done that for any other interview. Only I promise. We just want to feel special. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you've got us. You've got an exclusive. No, we talked about a lot of things on this show that I haven't talked about. Before. Well, good. Well, that's our, that's our point. So, Chad, had one last. I know we, we promised you an hour, and I want to try to wrap it up as quickly as possible. We're, We're going good. over. This is just honestly. This is more of a, a silly question than anything. But I'm just kind of curious with. And that's what you're going to end with. <laughs> no, I'm going to actually end with a couple he, other things. He's going to end it, but I just got to. So Disney Plus was was huge in the streaming world, you know, beating Netflix in, in most months. But when it first got introduced, did you ever think that Fuzzbucket would get the exposure that it did? Because there have been so many articles about the strangest thing to find on Disney Plus or the Fuzzbucket is Fuzzbucket's at the number one list. It's on so many sites, Mick. I never think Boogity. that would happen. And Mr. Boogity, yeah. yeah. You know, the last thing I expected was for anybody to have access to Fuzzbucket. <laughs> I can't say it's a point of pride, but it was my first time out as a director, and it, it was unbelievably highly rated. You know, I mean, as far as the ratings go, people watched it, and it played on the Disney Channel for years when right. it was new. And, you know... I, it's not my finest hour, but um, no. it's there. And the fact that people are pointing at it as such an oddball entity is incredibly gratifying. <laughs> but, you know, Mick, I'd never somehow another had missed it and had never seen it and caught it. I don't know if you knew this, but Turner Classic Movies was doing old Disney stuff later at night, especially on the weekend, sometimes Sunday. And they'd shown it several times. And that's where I caught it was I after had no midnight. idea. 
Google it. Turner Classic Movies was doing old Disney. Like you could watch the three Caballeros uncut from the 40s, which you. Now that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So I was DVRing stuff so I could catch up things I'd never miss because I'm obviously a big ass nerd. But that's how I'd never seen it either. And I thought I'd seen everything. And I had to go back to IMDb and go, he did Buzz Bucket? What's the fuck is that? That was my debut. Yeah. But it got your DGA card, right? Indeed, I did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's great that it's out there. It has not aged particularly well. But for people to point out its oddness is, like I said, incredibly gratifying. And and this is the first interview I've talked about Fuzzbuck. Well, well, yay! It's just since 1986, anyway. Yeah, it was just amazing when 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 it came out. CNN, BuzzFeed, all of them had these articles. Mick and Fuzzbucket was number one or number two on all their lists. And I'm like, did Mick ever see this kind of exposure happening again for Fuzzbucket? It's just definitely amazing. not. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I'm still not a subscriber to Disney Plus, but I don't have kids. So. Well, that's yeah. okay. Uh, we do. It's not for the kids, Mick. <laughs> There's a few things on there, like Return to Oz. That's not for children. Oh, yeah. Farusa Balk, though. Yeah. Yes, I, I, agree, I, I but I, not for children. I, I argue with Joe because I actually introduced Return to Oz to my four and six year old, and they loved it. Did they? Stop I actually screaming? directed a pilot for the the WB called uh, Lost in Oz. Lost that, in Oz, yeah. That never was broadcast, and was one of my favorite things I did for television, and I. I what got picked up instead was a show called Birds of Prey, the DC. Oh, show, no. Which did not do well at all. No. So I was hoping they were kicking themselves for not putting Lost in Oz up. You can find it on YouTube, I think, and it's, it's a lot of fun. So one last question. And I, like I said, I really, I've always wanted to see a, because Desperation has one of my favorite endings to a novel when he brings back the hammer. God forgive me. I hate critic. It's was one of, and I know the novel doesn't quite end there, but in my movie, that's that's for yeah. the in my movie in my mind. You know, I yeah. hate critics and him coming down. But you didn't get you did it for television. But what I really want to ask about is Toby Hooper because I never got to meet Toby. I was supposed to meet him in Chicago at a Fangoria Weekend of Horror. He didn't show, which I hear was typical. Not unusual. Yeah. Yeah. No. But you guys, you you dedicated a whole postmortem to him with Bill Mosley and I'm so sorry I'm forgetting Stretch's real name. Caroline. Yeah. And you guys were close. And I, I dearly love, and we didn't talk about Masters of Horror, but I dearly loved his damn thing. It's right yeah. up there with cigarette burns. And I there's like a hammer for you. Yeah. Would you, yeah. And I love chocolate as well. But thank you. I what why were you all so close? Because you, you, you clearly lost someone that you, you were having a hard time with. It still hurts. You know, Toby was such a generous and kind guy. And he's a guy, he, he kind of, kind of, you know, fumble uh, 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 yeah, like this. And you want to like put in the words for him. Uh-huh. And he was, he was kind of a germaphobe. Um, and yet he had this wildly gruesome imagination this you know uh black humor but so bloody i i call it red humor red humor yeah i've heard you say it's so dark but it's funny i mean chainsaw 2 may be my favorite toby hooper film of all so so tonight because there's not a lot of new horror films for Scarefest, i do it weekly that's my four minutes tonight is i've already shot it 
defending Chainsaw 2 and uh-huh. how I think even now 34 thir- Canon Canon did three good movies, right? Is like that um Firewalker. <laughs> no, not Firewalker, asshole. <laughs> the Chuck life Norris. Force. They had the two piles, right? Chuck. Uh, oh, yeah. Invaders Chuck. from Mars and Life Force. Yeah. Invaders yeah. from Mars and Life Force. But I'll tell Life you Force, me. I've defended it before, too, even though it's an uneven film. I can't Even if only for Matilda May. Matilda May. Matilda May is beautiful, but they spent $30 million on that. And they cast, I think the problem is, is Steve Rails back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you agree with me as a filmmaker because I've always said, I know Toby, it's it's bonkers, but I think if we had a solid lead actor in that movie, it would have worked. Yeah. I think, you know, Toby was a really wonderful guy and incredibly generous. And, you know, we were, we were very close. And I just appreciated who he was as a human being as well as an artist. Because here's this this teddy bear of a guy, really shy in front of other people, and yet very articulate when he would do interviews. Um, and and I just really loved the guy. And it was so great to be able to give him an opportunity to do really good work and do whatever you want on Masters of Horror. Mm-hmm. And just as long as you can meet the budget and schedule, it's yours. You have final cut, all of that. And with a good script, Toby made great movies. If the scripts weren't great, then, you know, they were stylishly made and beautifully made, but you can't make a good movie out of a bad script. You know, you can make a bad movie out of a good script, but if you've got a good script, then you've got the platform for that. And Toby, unfortunately, was saddled with some projects that did not have the best screenplays. But when he was on, running on all cylinders, like he was on Masters of Horror, you know, he kicked those scripts asses. Yeah. Really made something memorable and notable and, and very uh, personal, you know. And he, what, another thing that was special about him was despite his age, he was like a 25-year-old first-time director each time out. He would study the equipment. He was on top of what visual effects were transforming and evolving into. He was on top. Even the Mangler had early CGI that he, yep. he used very effectively. Um, so, you know, he, he was really a unique, wonderful guy and a very close friend. And I really, really miss him. And I'm glad to hear you feel the same way about the chainsaw. I think, 30, I think oh, people yeah. still don't get the humor because what he did was you can't, imitate a film that's iconic the movie that ridley scott chainsaw one said is the most formidable horror film yeah you can't yeah. repeat that so he and went he did, and did 180 degrees and make a dark comedy yeah i mean and carolyn williams and and yeah. and bill mosley are so great in that and it really was so are. great to get them together for the podcast to, and then basically we use the audio from the tv version of postmortem that we did with toby 10 years ago yeah Literally days before he died, we were planning on a podcast recording session. And that's that's what happened. Yeah. Well, Mac, uh, before we go, we would like to ask any upcoming projects, things that you want to talk about, anything that you'd like to let our audience know. Definitely Nightmare Cinema, but do you want to talk about your book and Postmortem? Sure. Well, Postmortem, you know, when when there was the meltdown at Fangoria, all of the podcasts chose to leave. Right. Now, Fangoria has been sold, but not the podcast network. 
we are in the uh, final stages of an agreement with a new home for postmortem. I've recorded several shows already, and uh, we're just waiting to be able to unleash that. I could not be more eager than anybody for that to happen. And this is where you're going to give us the exclusive of who those guests are. Yeah, no, I'll tell you uh, one of them, and okay. that's uh, we're going to have Mike Flanagan on. We're doing He's a fantastic that. filmmaker. A uh, wonderful guy. He's been on before, but before he did Dr. Sleep and, and, and the haunting of Bly Manor and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. So we're going to be talking about film adaptation for the Fantasia Film Fest, and then we're going to record it for our show. Amazing. But it'll be live at Fantasia. Um, and, uh, you know, the film stuff and television stuff has all been kicked in the ass by the COVID, wow. you know, and there were things that were on the verge, you know, we're in discussions with Shudder about doing a Nightmare Cinema 2, but that kind of went by the wayside when all of this came down. So there's still discussions going on. I've got a new book called These Evil Things We Do, the Mick Garris collection that is out there. Um, and once again, published by Fangoria. And so that went under, but it's still available through Amazon on Kindle and paperback because Amazon publishes on demand. Good. And, uh, so there are a couple of stores that offer signed versions that uh, I have signed for them. Dark Delicacies being one of them and Overlook Connection. Okay. And my band from the 70s. Horse Feathers. Actually, Horse Feathers put out our first album this year. We got a bunch of our best recordings. Wow. And added new vocals and instrumentation and really cleaned up the recording quality and everything. And it's now on Spotify and Apple Music and all of that. And, and it's called Symphony for a Million Mice by Horse Feathers. It's very prog rock, but with a sense mm -hmm. of humor. And you can get um, a, a signed by all the surviving band members. Our guitarist, Mark Wittenberg, passed away years ago. But the remaining four of us have signed special editions that you can buy the CD at uh, info at horsefeathersmusic.com. So... There's the business, which I really don't need to do, but since you offered, thank you. I always offer. We, we, we on, I listened to some of the horse feathers the other day. I wasn't familiar with it. And I don't know that I realized that you went back and redid some of the folks. That's awesome. So you're getting yeah. to visit something that has to be, it's like digging up dead bodies in a sense of just revisiting that. And who was this? Who is this young punk doing all this? Because it's a yet, totally different man than you are now. And yet the four of us have remained best friends ever since. We don't live in the same city, but um, we see each other occasionally. And it's always like we, it was yesterday that we saw each other. And going in and doing some harmonies with my own voice recorded originally was really so much fun to do and for everybody to revisit. Because we have hours and hours of material, and these were what we considered the best to, to make our first album. That's 50 awesome. years after we formed. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Mick Garris. You've, you've been a gentleman and a scholar, and we appreciate it. We've had a wonderful time. And check out all those things. And please check out Postmortem. Postmortem is one of those podcasts that I listen to consistently. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Even though we're not on yet, uh, mm -hmm. we'll be back up. We've still got close to 100 shows that are There's available. plenty of them out there with a lot of great interviews. You and the movies that made us are, and Gilbert uh, Godfrey are three of the ones that I listen to consistently. So thank they're you. They're the so. ones I hear too. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I'll go ahead and stop recording.
Uh,